0: Hello, welcome to episode 27 of the Good Good Golf podcast. Rod Morrie starting to feel the chill on what would have been a Masters Sunday in the US. But as we all know, world events mean that that won't happen until November, if at all. Which begs the question, if there's no Masters being played in the present, what is one to talk about? The answer, almost universally, including for us here today, seems to be delve into Masters past. That's exactly what we intend to do when we're joined by former Augusta Chronicle staffer Scott Michaud in just a few moments. But if you're sitting at your desk in lockdown while listening this week, why not do yourself a favour? Work on a new wardrobe for when all this virus nonsense settles down. The seasons are turning. That means no better time to visit purveyors of all things high-end in golf apparel and accessories. Our friends at thegolfsociety.com.au. They stock top brands in clothing. Ralph Lauren, Nike, you know the drill. Hugo Boss, shoes from G4, Adidas. Uh, all manner of belts, gloves, hats, anything else you might need for a day on course. Head to thegolfsociety.com.au forward slash talk and golf. You'll also get a discount off your first purchase. Golfsociety.com.au forward slash talk and golf. One G and talk and golf. before you jump in and make that known. Speaking of talking Golf, now as good a uh, time as any would be today to check out some of our other quality golf podcasts, Fitting for Masters Week, a special four-part series on Augusta course designer Alastair McKenzie on the and Golf History podcast with Connor Lewis. Uh, you can also take a peek into the psyche of a golf tragic with the excellent new Blind Shots podcast from Dave Hill all the way from Kentucky. What a world we live in. There's also on the T with Dr. P. This course Reports it. with Kurt Tyrrell. And if you just can't get enough of me, you'll find State of the Game and the thing about golf over there as well. Enough administration. Let's talk all things golf and masters starting with my regular co-host and golf nut Adrian Logue, who worked out this week that the Augusta scorecard is a palindrome. Logue, welcome. What's all this about? And just how badly are you dealing with isolation? <laughs> G'day, Rod. Uh, yeah, the, well, the whole not the whole scorecard, but the
1: front nine and the back nine, the, par, the whole pars on the front nine and the back nine. Uh, of Augusta National are palindromic numbers. So they're the same read forwards and backwards. And that is pretty rare, apparently, in uh, the golf world and just a happy coincidence. Um, The old course, the the entire 18 holes is a palindromic number. But there's very few examples other
0: than that. See, I was concerned when I saw that tweet from you about that. (laughs) I was then staggered when I saw the responses, including... What about the old curse? Uh, there is something wrong with golfers, isn't there? And it's all coming out under current circumstances. You can find Adrian at com or on Twitter at, at adrianloge. In fact, just Google Adrian Loge. I don't think there's any other results, are there? It's just you? There's another Adrian Logue, but he's, I've well and truly stomped him out of existence. <laughs> yeah, nobody can find him anymore, not even his family. Uh, good stuff. Good to... Uh, and, and you, Rod, at Rod underscore Mori At Rod underscore Morrie, and I am the only one. Uh, at this stage. I'm pretty sure they broke the mold. To Augusta now. And normally- underscore. Yeah, it's the underscore. Well, I couldn't- Uh, Now, what was the thing with it? There was some reason I couldn't have. You were part of this. Maybe you forced me to change my Twitter name Mm -hmm. because I was creeping up on you in the architecture influences list, if I recall. That's what happened. Yeah, that's what happened. Got nothing to do with it. Yeah, nothing to do with that. Augusta now. Normally at this time on this particular Monday- in Australia, would be uh, into the back nine of the Masters and all the excitement that generally goes with that. Of course, we're not doing that this year. So instead, we're going to do some looking back with former Augusta Chronicle writer Scott Michaud, who, like Logue, is exercising the deep recesses of the brain, it seems, by calculating the longest stretch between Major Scott. Welcome. What was the tweet of yours I saw this morning? There's too many numbers there for me to keep up with. What the hell have you been doing, my friend?
2: We're all just so bored. We're doing anything (laughs) to to pass the time and and make it seem like we're doing something golf related. But no, I I, I worked out that if they play the PGA Championship as they say they want to by August, that Shane Lowry will be the reigning uh, last reigning major winner for 385 consecutive days, Uh, and it's not the first time that they've gone a year uh, or more. Uh, with without a major championship uh, in the past, and the past it's been with World War Two, World War One, and then the first time it ever happened was when young Tom Morris had won three in a row, and they took the trophy home, and they didn't have one to present the next year. <laughs> That's
0: so, right. uh, Like, you can figure out whether there's anything palindromic in all of those numbers that Scott's just quoted to us while we uh, while we chat. Uh, will they play the PGA in August, Scott? Will that 385 number hold up? Uh, that's one
2: I would not make my uh, travel reservations just yet for August. I, I, that one seems like it's a little soon, but you know, they, they, they may have the situation under more control in California than they do in other places. So uh, I'm hopeful that they can get it done. But I, I do think that the Masters had the right idea by waiting as long as possible to, to give themselves a real chance of getting it played this year.
0: The longer it goes on, <clears throat> the less likely it seems. The more we find out about how this whole thing is going to unfold until there's a vaccine, this seems to be the on-off way that we'll be. There'll be a bit of lockdown, bit of easing, bit of lockdown, bit of easing, a bit of lockdown, so uh, we'll see how we go. Scott, uh, forget about all that. Let's go back to some happier times. Uh, you worked at the Augusta Chronicle for many years, and one of your jobs at the Augusta Chronicle was the annual, well, it was one of the great traditions of the Masters, uh, I reckon, the annual profile of the winner from the previous year. Tell us how you first came to be on staff there at the Augusta, a little bit of your golf sort of history there, were you a golf rider elsewhere before? And then we're going to talk about, I imagine, what would have been some of the highlights of your career, those profiles. Okay.
2: Well, before I got to the Augusta Chronicle, I was the golf writer at the Greensboro, North Carolina, News and Record, uh, where the, the Greater Greensboro Open uh, is played every year and Helen Ross who worked for Peach PG- what's that
0: isn't that the Windham
2: it's now the Wyndham. yes i still call it the ggo uh but uh, nobody point. else does but the but the old people know what i'm talking about uh but uh, when i took over there helen ross had been the longtime golf writer in greensboro and then she went to pga com in 1997 so I inherited the golf beat from her. And the very first golf tournament I ever covered was the 1997 Masters. So it was a pretty good start. Wow. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and they tried to cut it out of the budget that year with Helen gone, thinking they could uh, con the new guy into not going. Uh, <laughs> but I, I, I guaranteed to my sports editor that Tiger Woods mm. was going to win it and it would be the biggest story in the world and we'd look like idiots for not going. So he uh, okayed my travel that year and thank goodness Tiger came through for me or I may not be, have covered any more golf after that. How, but uh
0: just before you go on this no, then I got to green
2: then I got to Augusta in 2001. So mm-hmm. uh another pretty big milestone for Tiger Woods.
0: Yeah. Just before we go on Scott, I we know how important <clears throat> the Masters is to the town of Augusta and I will imagine in some ways a bit to the state of Georgia does that carry over to those nearby areas because the Carolinas is obviously a very golf rich sort of place did they see a do they see a boost there every year when the masters is on with people coming from all over the world wanting to play golf
2: they certainly do and I, I know uh, I know you know in the immediate area like Aiken South Carolina and all of the surrounding areas of Augusta they they Uh, reap the economic benefit, just like Augusta, even as far out as Columbia, South Carolina, which is a little over an hour away. Uh, But Columbia tends to be a little bit cheaper for the average traveler to try to find some accommodations and things. So you end up getting a large master's bump, even that far away uh, from people who want to stay in a decent hotel without uh, mortgaging their house to do so during master's week. And of course, people play golf everywhere around here. It's, it's, When you get people all over the world who probably a lot of them don't have springtime yet uh, where they come from, as soon as they seem to get in the Augusta area, they are just driven to the golf course to try to get that first taste of golf for the
1: season. There's an airport at Columbia as well, isn't there? So a lot of people use it as an alternate to Atlanta. Is that right?
2: There is. The three airports people probably fly in most often to would be uh, Charlotte, Atlanta and Columbia. Uh, Columbia is the closest, but it doesn't have the same volume of uh, air traffic that you would get at Charlotte and and uh, Atlanta. But it, it's pretty—it's a pretty big international airport and does pretty pretty well for itself.
1: And of course, there's an airport in Augusta, which I find intriguing because it—is it used for anything really significant outside of Masters Week? That airport.
0: I've looked well, at it on Google Maps, and it's recently... Wouldn't the members, it, <laughs> well, the members have all got their own well, planes? Wouldn't they be using it? I'd imagine. There's, there's actually two airports in
2: Augusta. Wow. Uh, one is the commercial airport, uh, and the other one is, is called Daniel Field, and it's the one that's closer to the golf course. And whenever you see those private jets that are flying over during Master's Week, that's where they're going. Uh, The traffic at Daniel Field spikes tremendously during that year. Famously, there was a story where a Delta 737 intended to go to the main international airport in Augusta and mistakenly landed at Daniel Field, which is a minor miracle (laughs) that it did because the runway is not equipped to handle a jet that large. And they ended up having to bring in military uh, test pilots to get the plane out of there. Wow. shutting down neighbourhoods and things like that in the nearby area so they could get it to take off again and get home.
0: And all the pros would have been looking and going, wow, who's upgraded? That's a big plane. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <They're> <laughs> the-, the shark doesn't have yeah, one of those. That's right. The shark's got uh, got something new. This will be a huge, just on that theme, before we come to some of the Masters past, Scott, it's not been really thought about, I guess, and we don't think about it when the Masters is on, but this will be really hurting Uh, large slabs of that southern area there, as you say, all that golf tourism that normally goes with the Masters, uh, all not there, that's a huge dent, I would think, in the annual revenues of most places within shouting distance of Augusta.
2: It would be a, an absolute de- devastating blow if they are not able to even play a master's at all this year. Uh, Augustine's referred to uh, Master's Week is their 13th month, their second Christmas. It's that important economically to the community, uh, not just for the restaurants and the hotels, but even the people that you know rent out their houses, the people that work during Master's Week, Uh you know, at the club because they hire an awful lot of you know students and everybody to come uh, do all the things that they need done for that tournament. It really is a major blow. But from a golf standpoint, I think you're right. I think it's going to be a big blow to those golf courses because. Playing it in November is a different time of season. You're not going to get the same level of golf tourism coming to town as you would in April. Well, you, you just
0: won't, I can imagine, Adrian, we, we both know people are in the travel industry who do Masters-hosted tours, and, of course, <clears throat> they're gearing up to try and get there in November, of course. They're not going to have the same sorts of numbers, are they, Adrian? People have planned for years to go in April for this Masters. They simply won't be able to just switch to November, so no matter what happens, there's going to be less people, isn't there, bloke? Well, the
1: thing – the thing is, it will save those businesses, though. And, oh, definitely. And I imagine for those residents in Augusta who rent out their house, it'll save them. It will save their livelihood. It, it, as I understand it, Scott, that's like 30 or 40% of a lot of people's uh, income for the year is renting out their house for that week. And it can be 30 or 40 or 50,000 US dollars for for the week, is that right? Those are the sort of numbers. Up it here. can
2: be more for some of the, the really nice homes in uh, what's known as the Westlake community, where they often rent to the players in the oh. tournament. They can get up to $100,000. Uh, oh. Some of the corporations get, I mean, immense homes uh, so that they can host corporate parties uh, during the week. So, well, I'm not feeling
1: too sorry for those people. No. <laughs> <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> the, the people they'll who survive. rely on the $10,000 rental for the year, that's probably the ones I'm worried about. But, yes, they'll yeah.
2: survive. And, and, I, and I know most of the people that are renting their house now, they'd already made accommodations uh, with uh, the people who are going to come. A lot of them will just roll it over into a november rental or some of them might roll it into going next year but you're right i don't know if everybody will be able to make the plans to make it this year and i have a feeling augusta is not going to reoffer those tickets to anyone who who decides to get a refund instead they'll just let fewer people come because it would be might might be a way of controlling uh the crowd a
0: little bit more yeah it's going to be weird. where did you where do you stay when you go to augusta or can you or you can drive from home
2: I stay at uh, my longtime co-worker David Weston's house. Uh, I've been doing that for years, uh, and we uh, then collaborate in the mornings and discuss things we're going to do and have drafts on the day after to decide what we're going to do for the next year's section. but I've always stayed with him, so I, I, that, I'll continue that tradition even though we no longer – either one of us worked for the Chronicle.
0: Yeah, well, so you, 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 you've seen since the, the rise of social media, some of the journos each year will tweet out pictures they're sleeping in children's beds with, you know, um, Buzz Lightyear <laughs> on the Duna covers and posters of Justin Bieber on the walls, and that's their accommodation for the week. But uh, And happy all, to have it. All happy to be there. What's the vibe like, Scott, in Augusta? Um, must be all a bit the, weird, they're replaying what? 2019 on CBS Today. They've been going through all these with the players doing the commentary. I'll get you to talk us through what that's like. We're not getting that in Australia. But what's the vibe like around Augusta this week?
2: Well, I mean, I went on Monday morning uh, right when you would have had the peak traffic showing up between 7.30 and 8 o'clock uh, in the morning to go to the first day of practice rounds, and it was desolate uh, you could drive down Washington Road, uh, which is the main uh, road that goes from the interstate right past the golf course. You could drive the speed limit all the way down the road without ever stopping uh, Berkman 's Road that goes through the parking lot you know the neighborhood they converted into a parking lot empty. It was really, really, very eerie uh to think of what the 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 energy is always like on that first day of master 's week and to see nothing out there. Uh, it was, it was, it was kind of depressing and, uh, but today oddly, uh, would have been just like last year. They would have had storms, uh, coming in late in the afternoon. I would have have anticipated the club making the similar decision to try to play early and see if they could get it in, uh, before the really bad storms hit later in the day and, uh, the the weather would have been an awful lot like 2013 when somebody else uh, mm-hmm. uh, won in some rather uh, <laughs> yes. heavy rain later in the day.
0: Yeah, indeed, we might uh, might talk about some of that soon. What's your relationship like with the club there at Augusta? It's a it's a strange place, isn't it? Scott, I've always had mixed feelings about the Masters and Augusta. That for everything good about it, there's something on the other side of the scale, isn't there? What's it What's it like? On the ground there, and sort of working with them and being there each year.
2: there is. It was always a very strange relationship between the newspaper and the club. Uh, when I was working at The Chronicle, the owner of our paper, Billy Morris, you know he was a longtime member. His son also was a member of the club. So everything we ever had to write about Augusta National had to go through his office and be approved. So every now and then, I would have a story that got spiked. Uh, because it didn't meet uh, whatever uh, standards uh, they wanted in not provoking wrath of the club. So, uh, the last time that had happened was in 2003, uh, pertaining to a Martha Burke story. Uh, they just thought we'd written enough about that and uh, and and decided we didn't need another one. So, isn't that called, uh, but for the most, isn't
0: that called for the censorship? Most part, I got everything. In. What's that? Isn't that called censorship?
2: uh you would think so but it was self-censorship so i guess uh it wasn't the (laughs) club
0: saying it it was the owner of
2: our paper doing it so the the club never uh got in the way just the owner who wanted to keep
0: his membership yeah got in the way yeah it's um yeah wow they're uh, (laughs) they're very powerful aren't they but they rarely they rarely show it publicly I used to work at News Limited and it was a similar thing with, you know, the whole deal with Rupert Murdoch. He never needed to tell his editors what he wanted to see in the papers. They knew. They all knew. So there was never anything outwardly spoken that we do cover these stories and we don't cover those stories. It's a similar thing with Augusta, isn't it? They kind of don't need to tell you. People know what it is that they do and don't want to see and what will happen if you, if you breach rules.
2: You're right. And I mean, even when you talk to some of the people at Augusta, you know, a long time, uh, you know, when I first got there, Glenn Greenspan, who was Tiger's PR guy for the last 12 years before he was let go uh, in December, uh, he was the the media uh, representative at Augusta National before Steve Ethan came along. And whenever you would talk to them and maybe get whatever bit of hinting information uh, that you were trying to verify on something that was being done over at the club. Uh, you knew the rules, which were you never quote them. You never mention them. You never do anything. If you if you go against those rules, uh, good luck trying to get any information uh, or any confirmation of something that you're working on down the road.
0: Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? Like we've talked about this with the PGA Tour and the way they sort of try to present to the world. It's ultimately unhealthy, isn't it, for the club as well, to have this, try and force this image on the world that everything's perfect and wonderful there?
1: <laughs> it
0: doesn't hurt. Augusta National at all? Does
1: it like they seem to be very successful with managing their their image? Um, there's there's plenty of unsavoury stuff that people have written about. You know, perhaps the Augusta Chronicle doesn't get the opportunity to write about it, but uh, it's all out there for for people to to access. Um, but I guess they they do muddy the waters with this uh, this management of it all, don't they? they they managed to create that element of doubt and um, uh, and and control the the story a little bit. So indeed, we, we better it, it, look. It's not good, is it? No. I'm curious about you know what else happens in Augusta. I've I've been there. It's seemed to me like a reasonably typical American town of that size. Town's maybe the wrong word for an Australian to use because it's it's relatively big. I mean, it's got two airports. It's a <laughs>
0: That's right.
1: We've only got one in Sydney. But, you know, everyone refers to it as a town, and, and it's often quite maligned in, in people. Like, the first thing people say about it is, oh, Augusta's a terrible town, but, you know, it's got this great golf course. But I, I found that not to be the case. I found areas of it were quite affluent, and uh, I, perhaps I didn't go widely enough into various parts of town. But like any part of America, it seemed to me like it's it's got – the best of everything and, you know, not one of the best golf courses in the world and also perhaps the worst of everything and everything in between. It's fairly, yeah, you know, fairly typical slice of Americana.
2: It really is. And I, and, and I mean, you know, people like to make fun of Augusta national because uh, of Washington road, which is a very corporate uh, strip malls and, you know, you know, chain restaurants and all those stores uh, and, you know, auto dealerships and everything. Uh, goes right past Augusta National, and everybody likes to make fun of that because it is such a a strange dichotomy between you know this normal uh, commercial strip and this very exclusive private club uh, because they're in such close proximity to one another. But I'm like, every town in America has that exact same road. Yep. There's not a single city that doesn't have a Washington Road or a street just like it in it. The one difference that Augusta has, it, it just happens to have uh, a world-class golf course sitting off si- off its Washington Road. So that makes it a better Washington Road than everyone else's. But, <laughs> I've uh,
0: raised the tone of everything just by the. <laughs> Exactly. But Augusta
2: is really a very normal town and it's it's not a small town. You're right. It's the second largest city in Georgia believe it or not. Now, granted, the first, the largest is Atlanta, which is a mammoth compared uh, to Augusta. So Augusta seems quaint by comparison, but it's where the medical school in Georgia is and all of, you know, every doctor and dentist uh, pretty much practicing in the state of Georgia probably uh, did their education for medical school or dental school in Augusta, Georgia. Uh, And it's got industry. I mean, it's certainly the uh, golf cart, uh, or buggy, as you might call it, capital of the world with easy go and club car uh, located there. Uh, so it's got plenty of industry and uh, and, and it, it's it's a big, you know, relatively thriving town uh, the other 51 weeks of the year. Uh, and then one week every year, everybody in Augusta moves out and goes on spring break. So
0: a <laughs> Lunatic. I, I, I
1: must say for, for myself and I think for a lot of Australians, the, the Washington Road, part of every city is is sort of an attraction like i i mean i we don't have well we do we have those big sort of strip mall type of things but we don't have quite the same obsession with chain restaurants and stuff and i I was quite Taken by Waffle House, for example. So the the, the morning after be. Tiger Woods' win, I, I went to Waffle House on Washington Road, and uh, I noticed a few other foreigners in there as well. But um, there was no locals there, oddly enough. But well, you uh, have
2: good taste, I gotta say. Waffle House <laughs> is one of the one of our finest culinary experiences that too many people don't appreciate.
0: What's yeah, the, Waffle House? Is what's the, the place. rib place? <laughs> BJ told me you used to go to the rib place, like, What's the rib place? Some ribs. Uh, well. T Bone Steakhouse?
2: Is that what you think?
0: I think that's the one. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. That that would sound very much up BJ's alley. T Bone Steakhouse is exactly the sort of thing that he'd be drawn to if he saw the sign. Oh, T Bone Steakhouse! I'll be up that. How, <laughs> many, how many people in Augusta? Just to give us a sense here in Australia of what sort of size town ta- town it is, Scott.
2: I mean, when you, if you if you include the whole metropolitan area of a, of Augusta, which would include some of the surrounding counties, like and, and cities like Aiken, you're talking more than half a million people. Okay. Uh, but it's uh, it, you know by Atlanta standards, which is you know four and a half or five million people, you're you're
0: on a far smaller scale. Wollongong, Newcastle, I think, like, would be the yeah. yeah. yeah that, that that sort of is probably the the uh, the rough uh, the rough. Uh, The rough calculation. Scott, I wanted to talk to you about some of these profiles that you got to do. So I wanted to find out firstly when you started doing those at the Augusta Chronicle. For those who don't know, it's one of the great great traditions of the Augusta Chronicle, which I used to look forward to every year, as I think most people, once we had access to the internet and we could get to read these things, lengthy, 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 in-depth feature on the previous year's winner. Now, let's start with 2013, we might as well, because you came here to Australia after Adam Scott won to do that profile piece for 2014 tell us the history of where that annual profile came from and then tell us some of the, some of the stories we'll start with Adam Scott and you can tell us whatever you feel like about some of the others that you did over time They must have been both fabulous and daunting every year
2: it, it was it was also my favorite thing to do every year uh i probably watched the masters with a keener sense of story than most people who are watching it live because not only was whatever happened on Sunday afternoon going to, to be the story of the day, it was going to be the story of my next year uh, and what I was doing with my life uh, <laughs> because, because the, the cover story is a bit of an obsession uh, in Augusta and, and doing it on the defending uh, Masters Champion was always the biggest deal at our newspaper and it was that way before I got there. It probably started in the early 90s uh when the the profiles started getting a little bit bigger and longer uh and and then they started traveling to some of the places uh where these guys were from i think the first international uh cover story that uh, one of my predecessors did was on Jose Maria Othobel uh in 1999 actually they they hadn't gone they, they didn't go get Sandy Lyle or or those guys back then so Othobel was the first international one And uh, so when I got there, uh, it had already been established. And we just took it to a a different level by making it really a series of stories, trying to really profile a guy's whole life uh, in a whole section of a newspaper, which is something that newspapers don't do anymore. Uh, And so we kind of prided ourselves on doing something different. It was magazine quality uh, in in a newspaper broadsheet and that how many was words? the goal every year how many words well it varied it varied i mean uh, uh the Phil Mickelson one that i think i did in 2004 which profiled sort of every element of his life i had separate stories on his wife on his children on on various things there were probably a a combination of 13,000 words when you put it all together uh it wasn't one story that's thirteen thousand words. It was, you know, eight or nine stories uh, that that made up those uh, that volume. But, but yeah, they were they were long and they were daunting. It would take me sometimes weeks to get started because you could just, you know, the, all the transcription that you would go through and you have everything out in front of you and you're just trying to like, what's the hook? I'm gonna I'm gonna do that's going to be able to to carry this thing to the finish line. So I would al- almost Get overwhelmed at the start, but once you got into it, uh, you know, volume never was a problem for me. I could, I could, I could produce a lot of words, much to my editor's that's
0: But uh, someone else's joke. But the
2: Adam one was one of my favorites because uh, you know the story of an Australian finally winning the Masters after everything that that not just Greg Norman, but several Australians had been through. At at Augusta National and being the one uh, major championships that no Australian had won yet uh, just made it into such a tremendous story that was beyond just Adam Scott. Uh, You know, it was really a story about a very proud sporting nation uh, finally getting over that hurdle that seemed to really be haunting them.
1: Bruce Crampton started, I think, didn't he? Finished second twice. Is that right?
2: Uh, there were there were there were several there
1: were
2: several uh i mean you know peter thompson never had much of a history uh at and one of the favorite things i did while i was down there when i was in melbourne was i went and had a coffee with peter thompson right in a coffee shop right across the street from his house uh and heard of his tales of augusta and how he you know he was so much busy getting the indian open uh Started and the Asian tour started that it conflicted with him going to Augusta every year. So I think it was a missed opportunity because it would have been nice to have seen him have a real history uh, trying to play there. Uh, but D- Jim Ferrier, I think, might have been the first <clears throat> that would be uh, who had a close. Yeah. What's that?
0: So that would be my Didn't, guess too. Jim Ferrier would have.
2: Wasn't he a runner up?
0: Could be. Possibly. I, mean, or I just made like it. That? I just made it to Bruce
1: Crampton's uh, Wikipedia page, and he was second in
2: 1972.
1: That okay. Was, uh, but I only... think
2: Ferrier might have been the first, and uh, uh,
1: Jack Newton
2: had some uh, uh, experiences there. Mm-hmm. And Craig of Perry. course uh, Craig Perry, exactly.
1: Stuart Appleby. Uh, Stuart, Appleby
2: Stuart Appleby was right. the 54-hole leader. Yeah. uh one year and, and let go but then of but of course everybody remembers Greg Norman it's impossible to forget the 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 haunting history that he had <laughs> at Augusta and it really sort of colored, I think, the psyche of the Australian golfers who came after him. Agreed. When they get to Augusta.
0: Of course for Australian fans, the the other thing was for you know, in this sports mad nation, quote unquote, and all that sort of stuff, it was the last Everest to climb because Cadell Evans, I think, in twenty eleven won the Tour de France. Yeah. That was the last major international sporting event that an Australian didn't have a name on the trophy. And so it wasn't just golf fans, I think, that the story developed in the Australian psyche that this was the one thing left to do after Cadell Evans' win. And that's why, I mean, Scott became overnight here in Australia, didn't he, Logue? I mean, he was always one of my favourite players regardless. And he's grown beautifully into the role and the responsibility that's come with it. But uh, he just became overnight uh, Australia's favourite well, for at least a year and couldn't have done any more on his tour here. Uh, at the end of 2013 no, when he came he was up. tremendous, wasn't he? It he was couldn't just have tra- been any better looking. And- <laughs> that's right. Any taller, any more yeah. in proportion. Uh, any <laughs> any, any more, better. Any more no bargain.
1: man should be as yeah. blessed as Adam Scott. No, that's, I mean, <laughs> yeah, that's Yeah,
0: incredible.
2: he's got it all. He even turned up to the but, golf
0: riders' dinner at the Australian Open that year, uh, Scott, which was probably a step too far when he made that bogey on 18 the following day and let Rory in to win. Uh, he, right. might, he might have, might have ruled that. Let's go back to that. So you did do the big piece on Adam Scott. You came out to Australia. So for a start, that's a huge commitment, obviously. But it also begs the question: Did it become kind of known that if you won the Masters, you had to submit to this Chronicle thing? Did any of the players ever say no? Well,
2: the, you know, we, we don't. We have never been invited to Tiger Woods's house. Surprise! Uh, so <laughs> yeah, but uh, but Tiger, you know. The, the last time I did the story, I did three cover stories on Tiger Woods, uh, and it's hard to do a big, giant profile like that on the guy three different times. And uh, But in 2005, when he won, uh, it was coming up, getting close to, you know, when the 2006 Masters uh, came, it was going getting close to the 10th anniversary in 1997. So I was trying to look at that, and I went out to California and got him uh, at Torrey Pines, And happened to run into him on the back of the driving range, literally an hour and a half after my flight landed on Monday. Uh, And he was all by himself with Hank Haney on the back of the range. And I just walked up, watched him finish hitting some balls. And I said, hey, Tiger, you know, I reintroduce myself to him every single time. He knows who I am, but, you know, I always reintroduce myself. I said, hey, I'm going to be out here all week trying to steal some moments from you for that cover story uh, in the Augusta Chronicle. So anything you any time you might have, I'd, I'd greatly appreciate it. And he said, how about right now? And he stood there and talked to me for 35 minutes. And it was okay. the best interview I've ever had with him. It was the most honest uh, interview I've ever had with him. He was talking about his father uh, who had, you know, who was close to to dying uh, at that point. Uh, and he talked about the bigotry that he endured through the years. And especially after that 1997, when he talked about so many things uh, and I had not prepared to do a sit down interview with tiger woods. I prepared to like, like two questions in at a time with him. So 35 minutes later, uh, I stood there and I said, tiger, I, I, I can't think of anything else. I, I was not ready for this. Thank you. And he goes, great. And that was that. So so even, you know, even guys like Tiger uh, and Phil, who have a lot of media requests uh, and do an awful lot of these things, uh, even they would take the time for the Chronicle because they knew it was important uh, to that newspaper. And it was part of the tradition of winning the Masters was coming, showing up the next year and having a big cover story on the defending champion. And I think uh, they appreciate some of that too.
0: Yeah, indeed. I wonder if Tiger was thinking at the time, uh, Michelle or Hank, oh, anybody but Hank, I'll go talk to Scott. <laughs> 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 Is that how that relationship wasn't around about that time, direct? No, you only just started working with him then, hadn't he? So
1: probably. He just probably pointed Hank in the direction yeah, of his little his uh, <laughs> ice box with the uh,
0: ice blong. Yeah, that's right. Go okay, get us an ice Just block, help yourself you, to Hank? one of those, Hank. Yeah. Get one for Scott too while you're there. <laughs> um, how did you find the – I'm interested in that, that, that that Tiger would have been feeling reflective in that moment. It would be an interesting peek into the psyche of players. Normally when a Jono gets to sit down with a big star, an Adam Scott or a Tiger Woods or a Phil Mickelson, it's all prearranged. There's time limits. Often there's other people in the room pointing at their watch and telling you time's up. They really are a waste of time in so many ways. It's rare to get a player in a genuinely reflective state of mind, particularly players like that. Did you get much of that? That's obviously one, and you weren't prepared. Uh, Did you you get – I don't mean that in a bad way. Why would you be prepared? Tiger Woods has never really – well, he's rarely spoken openly to anybody about anything. It would be a huge shock if he offered more than it was great to win number three or whatever he might have decided or four, whatever it was decided to say. So did you get much of that amongst various players? And who have been your favourites to do? Obviously, you're going to say Adam because we're in Australia, but uh, just some other moments that you remember about that.
2: Well, Adam was fun because I did get to go to Australia and I went early and I – I went to Sydney. I went to Melbourne. I went to Tasmania. I played a lot of incredible golf courses and I probably have never been felt so welcomed uh, by any nation in my life uh, than when I went down there. I, You know, Victoria Golf Club, they put me up in the clubhouse overnight and they flew the American flag because I was staying in residence. Wow. So I've never been treated uh, as royally. I mean, that the name Augusta. Uh, carried an awful long way in Australia, and people were way too kind. Uh It was just one of the great experiences I've ever had. But some of the other uh, interviews that really stood out to me uh, were a couple of the other long-distance ones I went to. Uh When I went to South Africa to get Charles Schwartzel, uh, he was probably the most accommodating that I've ever had, and nothing was set up really in advance other than a, I was going to get to sit out, sit down with him one day for an hour or two, uh, because that's how agents always set things up. They give you a time limit. And, uh, when I landed at about midnight in, uh, Johannesburg, uh, I got a phone call from a woman who, uh, helped coordinate his stuff down there. And she said, Charles, uh, we'll meet you at the, at this little airport near where he, uh, grew up at 7 30, uh, tomorrow morning. So I'd just flown, you know, 23 hours to get there. And in five hours, I needed to get up and go meet Charles Schwartz at this airport. He was there with his wife and his father. He took us up in his plane, flew around his, his home. Uh, we went to his home, the farm he grew up on. He then took me to lunch at his, the club where he grew up playing and introduced me to all his friends, Then uh, he said he had just gotten his helicopter license that day Uh, and (laughs) as you would. And so he said, "Uh, how about you come over to uh, the house for dinner? Uh, So he he went and got the helicopter and took it to his house so we could get pictures of him in the helicopter uh, in the green jacket. And he cooked us a South African braai. Uh, himself for dinner, had some more friends and hit and other people over to talk to us. Uh, some of his high school and junior, uh, golfing mates. And by 10 30 that night, uh, you know, we had spent, uh, almost 16 hours with him. Uh, so.
1: Did you have to I tell was, him to back off a little bit? It's like,
2: <laughs> oh. <laughs> and and the, the weird thing is we, we were scheduled to be there for five days uh to try to get all of this stuff so we got it all in one day uh so we just ended up going to sun city and going to the casinos and <laughs> and, and trying to interview other south african golfers uh to to find some other stories while we were down there to kill time before our flight home wow uh, he does seem
1: obviously unaffected doesn't he charles schwarzel
2: yeah. So that was that was terrific. I mean, and not only that did he spend those every one of those sixteen hours with us, his wife did too. I mean, that's uh access that you don't often get to to family and, and and close friends. And he he basically took us and introduced us to everyone we needed to talk to. And there were dozens of people. So uh and the other one that stands out in my mind is Angel Cabrera. And we went down to Argentina and uh and Cabrera, uh you I don't know how much you know him, uh, but to meet him is to be intimidated by him. You know, he's not a guy who uh, inv- invites a warm, uh, <laughs> welcoming personality. Uh, and, he, you know, he speaks English, but he doesn't want to speak it in an interview because he doesn't want to embarrass himself mm-hmm. by saying something funny. So you have to go through a translator. Uh, he understands what you're saying. You just don't understand what he's saying. And, uh, well, he wanted to have us have an authentic Argentinian experience. Uh, so we went into this back room at some, uh, store where he had all of his friends and caddies that he grew up with and the people who sponsored him getting started in professional golf and some members of the club where he caddied and all of these friends from his hometown, and, uh, Vigia uh, we're all there for this, uh, authentic, uh, Argentinian barbecue. And, uh, then he decided he wanted to do the interview right there in front of all of them. <laughs> so there were 20 people sitting around watching me. And let me tell you, every one of them looked about as welcoming as Angel Cabrera. <laughs> and I felt, I honestly felt like I was a federal, uh, Bureau of Investigations agent trying to interview Tony Soprano in the back room of Satrial's with all of his, uh, with, you know, Polly Walnuts and, and Silvio and Big Pussy and all of the characters from The Sopranos watching me, waiting for me to say the wrong thing uh, and I would never be seen again. Uh, He's got
1: resting gangster
2: face. He does
0: <laughs> resting gangster face. Beautiful, luke. <laughs> yeah. Some of your best work. Right there. That was in the middle of the night. Wasn't it wasn't about one o'clock in the morning. I remember reading that piece, Scott. Wasn't it? This is what Clayton always says about Sevi: is that you know, and, and and similarly, I imagine Cabrera that the, the South American way of doing things just doesn't gel with what they find in America when they sort of go to live there full time. They eat dinner at six and be done by six thirty. Sevi'd be getting ready. He'd go out at nine, nine thirty to wander around before. Dinner dinner, would it wasn't... take three hours. Yeah, that was, about a, that was a 1 a.m. barbecue, wasn't it? That one that you were talking about? Was something crazy like that, if I recall?
2: No, that one was actually during the day. Uh, okay. But the rest of my meals there, uh, if you tried to go to dinner at 9 o'clock, uh, they would consider that the early bird special. <laughs> uh, nobody I, – I tried – I went to a concierge at my hotel when we first got there and just wanted a recommendation for where to go for dinner, and it was like 8 o'clock at night. And they wouldn't give me a recommendation because it wasn't time to go to dinner yet. (laughs) So (laughs) they they made me wait two hours before they told me where to
0: go. Yeah. So did you enjoy uh, it? it,
2: I did. I, I, I I loved being down there. I, when we when what what you remember from being one in the morning of the Cabrera was we arrived in his hometown and the flight from Buenos Aires to Cordoba, uh, got in a little before 1. AM. So we rolled into the town That he lived uh, after one o'clock in the morning and there was a festival going on with children playing. And it was Sunday night uh, at, you know, 1 a.m., really Monday morning. And I've never seen a more lively place in my life. So we ended up going out and we're hanging out till about 3.30 or 4 o'clock in the morning uh, at a a festival and carnival uh, with people playing bocce ball and children running around in the streets and and drinking beer all night long. It was incredible.
0: Somebody like Cabrera. Cabrera is a fascinating study. What an extraordinary player to watch. I mean, he, he i mean, he should have won the Masters a couple of times before he eventually did, and the one that he won, you had the feeling he probably shouldn't have. So <laughs> there was some, some that irony. That was Kenny Perry's Masters. Yeah, the, very much so. Or Chad Campbell was the other one who was in the playoff, wasn't he, as well, yes. if, if I recall. Is there a difference – this is probably more about people, I guess, than just golfers – Somebody like Tiger, who's didn't grow up privileged, obviously, but uh, sort of middle-class America, Cabrera came from much different stock, didn't he? How does that impact, do you think, not just people, but the way golfers like that perhaps play the game and approach the game and then approach the world after something like winning a major, as has happened for Cabrera, winning two majors? Everything changes about the way people deal with them. Did you get a sense that he was in his comfort zone back there at home, or had he grown beyond that, do you think?
2: Well, the, the, the funny, you should say that, the interesting thing is after I finished my uh, interview with him there, I had a photographer with me, and uh, Cabrera's, uh, one of his longtime teachers is Charlie Epps. And uh, Charlie Epps is a Texan, but he lived a lot of his uh, youth down in uh, this, in Cordoba, in Argentina. So he's very familiar with all of them down there and all their customs. Well, Charlie had the green jacket with him. Uh, cause he knew we wanted to get a picture of Cabrera in the green jacket. So as soon as my interview was done, I turned it over to the photographer. I said, you know, we'd like to get a picture of you with the green jacket. And Charlie had it draped over his arm and Cabrera in the most unmistakable, uh, tone you've ever heard just said, no. And we were like, excuse me. He says, no, he says in, he- in here, I am just Pato. I am not the green jacket. And he would not wear that green jacket in front of his friends and the people he grew up with because he felt that that was big timing them Uh, there. He was just himself, you know, other places, maybe if we'd gotten him at the club, he might've put it on, but he would not put it on there. So we never got a picture of him in a green jacket.
0: Wow. Story in itself isn't about it? A weave, a, actually, it's a little bit yeah. odd, but yeah. But I suppose. Well, yeah.
2: I mean, he'd just been talking. He'd just been talking about. He he said, you know, we, I asked him about the nerves in that playoff because, if you recall, he had a terrible tee shot. It was awful. Uh, yeah.
0: He had no it, right. Absolutely
2: <laughs> awful. There was there was really you thought it was done. Uh, he had a big giant magnolia tree and another giant oak tree between him and the green. There was no shot. There really wasn't, and. uh, and I'd asked him about how nervous he was trying to hit a miracle shot through a tiny hole that he only could see in the tree and managed to pull off uh, and to try to win a na- major championship. And he said, listen, when you grow up uh, stealing chickens to feed your family, there's nothing. A golf tournament's not going to make you nervous. So he basically, he just said, there's nothing that happens to me professionally on a golf course that can ever make me Feel nerves.
1: Yeah. I can imagine he just casually grabbed a, a chicken as he was <laughs> just saying like, that and snapped its his neck. neck off, or something, <laughs> just to make the point.
0: <laughs> just peeling it while he was talking to you, defeathering it while he was chatting to you about this is kind of how we uh, how we do it. He's a fascinating character, isn't he? To bring it back to Adam Scott, of course, Scott credited Cabrera with, uh, uh, you know, uh, after that playoff, he talked about how Cabrera had sort of been instrumental in the turnaround after his slump in two thousand and nine by telling him at the President's Cup what a great player he was and, and how much that meant to Scott. Tell us about the trip down here to Australia. How did you manage to um, convince the people in Augusta National that you needed to go to Tasmania for some reason to do a story on Adam Scott, who's from Queensland, the other end of the country? Uh, how, did you, how did you manage to sneak that in? And then tell us what Adam was like
2: I, to chat to. I did the Tasmania part on my own. That uh, was on my own dime. Uh, I did a little week of travel before I went up to Queensland for the, uh, the, PG- the Australian PGA, which was being played up there. And that's where I got Adam. And the, uh, the best part about that trip up there was Adam knew we wanted to get a picture of him in that green jacket. And we had uh, through some cross wires with some of the, uh, the Australian PGA uh, tour officials. We didn't get invited to a photo session uh, on the eve of the tournament. Uh, There was a banquet down there and Adam had shown up in the green jacket, but they had a private photo session for some people beforehand and they forgot to invite us. Uh, So I think Adam uh, felt a little bad about that, that we'd gotten left out and he knew we wanted to get that picture. So he agreed to wear the green jacket to sign autographs with the Australian uh, fans who showed up at the tournament. So on Friday, after he played his round, he went and got the jacket and stood under an umbrella and you know signed autographs for an hour uh, while well, people just came up and took pictures. And some just wanted to come up and touch the jacket. Some were afraid to touch the jacket. They just yeah. wanted to stand there and look at it. Uh, and then some women just wanted to stand there and look at Ash. <laughs> That's right. I
1: must well, say, you, I'm getting a bit uh, of OCD just thinking about the number of magic markers that were near the jacket. Yeah.
2: <laughs> but it was it was it was impressive just just seeing how much it meant to the Australian fans uh, to have him standing there in that jacket. You would have thought uh, you know if the Pope had been standing there and all of his vestments, I don't know if people would have been as in much. Uh, awe, as they were of Adam in that garment.
0: Certainly not a royal park. It's amazing
2: pirate. that it's amazing what, what that that jacket speaks to people.
0: And he well, he'd done such an amazing job, didn't he? Like I can recall that end of season, he was everywhere. He he never said no to anything. He said yes to everybody. He really seemed to feel his responsibility to share that victory with everybody else, which I thought was in, incredibly impressive. How did you find him, Scott? Because Adam strikes me—he's one of the very important voices in the game that we perhaps don't hear enough of, but when we do hear from him, he always seems to be, apart from this Premier Golf League, Adam, get off the Premier Golf League, mate. There's no, no future <laughs> in that. Apart from that, uh, when we do hear from him, I think he's, he is one of the more important and more sort of level-headed voices in the game. How did you find him? Uh, and is he sincere or has he got me conned? Well, I
2: think what I like about Adam is I think he is sincere. Uh, he gives you an honest answer, even if it's not a popular answer. I think, you know... Uh, you know, listening to his uh, views on the Olympics in the the past, uh, five or six years, uh, has been illuminating because he's not giving you a BS answer. He's giving you what he honestly feels. And I don't think very many golfers do that these days. I think Rory and Adam stand out, uh, in that regard in that they don't hide their truth. Uh, even if their truth might not be the most popular one. Now, most of the time, Adam is a very popular, uh, golfer and has nothing but really good, uh, level headed things to say. Uh, but I think whatever he does say, you know, you can trust that it's honest, that it's not a PR stick, uh, which, you know, you talk to a lot of these guys and it's almost as though they're trained not to tell you anything.
0: Well, you hear the same things, uh, don't you? And you can tell when you're interviewing somebody, somebody who's done a lot of interviews, you can feel the, the reflex responses. This is the this right. is the line I give in answer to that question, and and they'll put on a smile and have a laugh about it. But you can always tell when it's not quite true. But I agree, with you. I don't think you ever get that from McElroy or from Adam. That's my feeling.
2: No, and I appreciate. I, I always appreciate. It. I hate it. I hate it when a uh, athlete. It gives an answer that's an honest answer, and if it's not a popular one, they get ripped for it. And I'm like, why are we ripping them uh, for saying something that was honest? We want them to tell us honest things. If we keep just criticizing every honest word they say, they're going to stop giving us any honest words. So I think it's important to let them speak their truth, uh, and us as reporters just report it and not always shred them for saying something that isn't those politically cor- correct uh, answer. How
0: so golf got well, into the, this mess. It's a bloody political correct answer, isn't it? And they continue to dig the same hole by always having the politically correct answer. I'm sorry, I interrupted you there to do a bit of editorial. Yeah. Well, the but, the interesting thing about
1: Adam, as well, is he he pauses before every answer, sometimes to an uncomfortable extent. <laughs> Not by accident, I'm sure. Uh, and, all the time, but he's being thoughtful about it. Yeah, very and, much. Uh, uh, there's no automatic answers with with adam scott he he really genuinely tries to think about his response and um you don't you don't see that it doesn't come across in paper but in person when you're, you're seeing him respond to questions he's he's always got this very thoughtful pause i don't know if it's for
0: effect or, or anything but it's it's quite
1: it, it does come across
0: as very genuine well, funnily and adds weight and, to whatever it says well funnily enough early in his career he was not terrific in press conferences he was not super comfortable, it didn't seem, and it wasn't a place that he enjoyed. I feel, Scott, that Adam, in, since winning the Masters well, seven years ago now, has almost completely changed in his public persona where, and I don't know whether you got the sense that he seems to feel and understand the responsibility of, of this position in the game that he now occupies, a little bit like Brooks Kepka uh, who said recently, you know, when he was ranked 50th in the world, who was he to tell anyone anything about anything? But having won a couple of majors and having a different position in the game, it's his responsibility to call out Patrick Reed, to call out slow play, uh, to, to talk about some of those issues. Did you sense that from Adam? Did you sense that he felt a shift and a new responsibility?
2: Well, I think Adam has always felt a little bit of responsibility because even when he was young, uh, he was always one of those guys that was put up on a pedestal as going to be a future great. Uh, so he had a lot of responsibility and uh, uh, expectation to live up to. So I think he's always sort of felt uh, that he needed to speak his mind a little bit. But I think what he's done more recently is just become more comfortable with it. I think his, his personal life is in a good place. You know, he's got family now. I think I think he just is in a, in a comfortable place in his life where he's uh, it comes more naturally to him. He's just you know saying what he feels now, uh, and he's not concerned about uh, you know any fallout from it. Uh, and I you know I think he, he's always had the responsibility. I just think he I just think he's grown into the role. Uh, he's matured into it, and and I think light he's in a great place in life. And I will say this. I think this uh, pandemic stoppage uh, of, of our world affected him yep. uh, from a professional standpoint more than anyone, because I really think he had hit his stride again. And I would have liked his chances this week uh, at Augusta and in the upcoming majors uh, if we had been uh, on our usual schedule.
0: There were shades of 2011, 12, 13, that period there, wasn't there about the way he'd sort of finished off last year and kind of started this year? I agree with you. I thought, I thought, and you, he's said it a number of times himself. He's talked about the window closing. So he's aware of it and there's a sense of urgency there. And he knows that he doesn't have forever, uh, to keep. He was fabulous at the President's cup too. I thought he took on a, uh, you know, quite the role down there. So uh, I agree with you. I think of that there'll be winners and losers out of this pandemic. Tiger might be one of the winners with a rested back for an extra bunch yeah. of months, but I think Adam will be one of those who, as you say, uh, might be hurt by it. Who have been some of your other favourites? And is, is there a difference? Do international players see a Masters victory differently to American players, Scott?
2: Do, they, do the international view it differently, you think?
0: The players, I- yeah. So does Adam Scott feel differently about having won the Masters compared to Phil Mickelson or Patrick Reed or... Do you, do, you, do you see what I'm sort of saying there? Do we view the Masters differently from outside? I don't,
2: I don't think – I think everybody views the Masters relatively equally. I think uh, international players probably look at the Open Championship differently than American players do, and American players probably look at the U.S. Open differently than international players do. But I think the Masters is the one major that sort of all of them see the same – uh, value in winning it. They know that it's historic. They understand that they're going to be going there the rest of their lives. They will be forever linked to that tournament and that place and that champions dinner uh, for as long as they live and then beyond. It, it's it it you know all major wins are huge, but for some reason that Masters win just stands out to everyone. I think, and I think the internationals view it just as much. Uh, as as being special as Americans do.
0: It's ironic, isn't it, Adrian, that, well, I think Peter Thompson supposedly once described it as the greatest con in sport, (laughs) and he's right in the sense that it has no pedigree beyond the founder uh, and its own marketing, not like a US Open or an Open Championship or even a a PGA or even a Players' Championship, dare I say it, late in the piece so that we can generate some emails right at talkinggolf.com if you wanted to have a shot about that. Um, It's ironic, though, isn't it, Adrian, that, the te- quote-unquote easiest of the four majors to win, the smallest field, the biggest chunk of the field who can't win, uh, holds this extraordinary status in the game. Well, it's it's unique
1: in many ways that the tournament stuck to its guns with its initial the the you know the way it was it established itself and then it stuck to that formula with with obvious modifications, but then doing things that are completely the opposite of what many other tournaments do, like you know, selling right down to selling the pimento cheese sandwich for like $2 or something, like virtually giving away all of, all of those
0: things. Yeah. Is it worth more than $2 Adrian? My understanding is that $2 might be overcharging. Is that true?
1: <laughs> well, I think that's a matter of taste and uh, I'd pay any amount for, for one actually, but um, uh, just, just one, one a day. It's a little bit too much to take more than one of them. Um, But the Georgia Peach ice cream sandwich is the one I think they could charge. They could name their price for that. (laughs) I'd be up for
0: that. Even from here, I can tell you I'd be up for that. No problem. Uh,
1: But just doing things like not having a title sponsor and, you know, just they seemingly do the opposite of every other tournament in the world. And that creates something unique. And uh, and I, I think that's been the key to success over the years. But in terms of that international standing, you know, it was a big deal for us, but, wait till a japanese wins uh, augusta that that a japanese masters winner will be colossal and and augusta national of course has a long history of of having a relationship with japan i think they one of the first ever members was a japanese national um, and uh, since then they've always made a point of giving over the years i made a point of giving a lot of wildcard entries to uh, Japanese players, and uh, it, it's a very, very big deal in Japan. And uh, the first Japanese winner is going to be a very big thing.
0: Well, I'm not, you obviously didn't see it this morning yet, Adrian, but Hideki did, in fact, win the virtual Masters that Norse God was oh, winning this the weekend, okay. yeah. <laughs> won, won by a couple of shots from McElroy, if I'm not mistaken, from the leaderboard that I saw Norse God had done up. It wasn't always that way for Augusta National, was it, uh, Scott? Their early years and the early years of the Masters, in fact, almost smacked of desperation in some Sensors. They used to have a Miss Augusta pageant through the middle of town that went with it. They had a long drive contest, if I'm not mistaken. They vert. They almost all but paid the press to turn up and cover it in the early years. So it wasn't a guaranteed winner from the get-go, was it?
2: No. It, it, that's, that's the curious thing about it is that it was uh, – the club itself was almost a complete failure uh, because it was built in the, during the Great Depression here – and they couldn't attract members. All of the members came from the New York uh, area. Bobby Jones was the only Southern member uh, of the initial uh, membership. And and at one point, I think the club was down to its last $10 uh, and, you know, couldn't afford to pay its toilet paper bill, which, of course, today. I was going to we say, we've got full
0: circle, that's right. <laughs> but, but, but back in
2: 1934, uh, that it seemed strange. But, uh, but yeah, it really was, uh, you know, they, there were plans at that club. It was going to be a very different place, uh, than what it turned out to be because they were going to build two courses. Uh, they were going to have houses all over the golf course. They we're going to have tennis courts, swimming pools. It was going to be a traditional club because they needed to do that to try to generate, uh, the money, uh, that they felt they needed to survive. Uh, but then it, it managed, you know, it didn't have enough money to do all those things to begin with. Uh, and when they got on their feet, they decided, you know what, we kind of like it the way it is with just this clubhouse and just this golf course. Uh, and so by really by happy, dumb luck, uh, it ended up being what it is today, uh, instead of just another big, uh, country club, Mm. uh, like you see all over the country.
1: Were, were there actually so, some houses built? You're like thinking there was same thing I am. Yeah, Behind the 10th
2: green? There was or? one right behind the first tee, right behind oh. the first green, I mean. Okay. Behind the first green. And actually, the guy who uh, used to be the uh, uh, first tee announcer, uh, the member who was in, he passed away about five or six years ago. Uh, he grew up in that house. Uh, but then uh, the club bought it uh I don't remember exactly when. I would say sometime in the 1950s. Yeah.
1: They started or- their great or- tradition of buying out houses. Buying out. real estate it
2: around the country. This was the first example. The <laughs> yeah. first house they bought up, and within a day, they bulldozed and it and was gone. Wow. <laughs> a tradition
0: like that, And by the next day, you probably couldn't tell that it was ever there. Uh, that oh, yeah. to be how they, how they do things. <laughs> I saw the aerial this morning of how they just turned Berkman's Road around behind the back of the fifth. 50- Green there when they or the 15 or whatever, when they extended it, the aerial from last year and this year, there's this straight road, and now it's just got this huge hook in it where it just goes around. How much of Augusta do they own? Do we know, Scott? And is the rumor true that the long term vision is to have across the street there on Washington Road essentially a players' compound where the players will stay when it's on?
2: Well, there's lots of rumors they will not confirm any of it but they have not stopped buying uh, land uh, they you know it seems to be true that they want to buy everything between the club and the interstate all along Washington Road and maybe eventually one day have their own exit off the interstate uh, just for that that piece of property uh, but the neighborhood behind the par three i think that's what you're referring to it's called vineland there are a lot of little houses there these people are a lot more savvy than the people in the neighborhood that's now the parking lot they know what Augusta's is up to uh, they know the value of their modest homes uh, is a lot higher than face value of comparable homes their size anywhere else in the world uh, so it's taking them longer to try to uh buy out Those neighborhoods, but in the 40-year plan, uh, I've heard that they would like to build housing for everybody who participates in the Masters, whether it be uh, a condo or a palatial mansion. They'll have whatever is up to anyone's tastes, uh, I would assume, in the long term. Across the street on Washington Road, they built a a huge tunnel underneath Washington Road now that goes from sort of behind the par-3 area. Uh, over to their property that they own across the street. Uh, you can fit three tractor trailers uh, side by side going through this tunnel, and on that other side is where they're going to be building their new broadcast center,
0: mm-hmm.
2: uh, and that's where CBS and all of the networks uh, will have their broadcast facilities uh, and a huge state of the art thing, like much like the new media center that they built uh, for the the print press. Uh, behind the the practice range, but uh, that uh, that I was slated, I think, to be done this off season. Uh, you know, before the next Masters. Uh, but I think that will probably be put on hold uh, because there will not be an off season. Uh, they'll be getting ready for a Masters in November, so they won't be tearing up quite as much uh, from the end of May to the beginning of October that they do in other years.
1: Just one question about the golf course in November. Have you seen the course at that time of year and what what can we expect in terms of visuals?
2: I've seen it. Uh, I've never been on it uh, at that time of year, uh, but people who have I mean you're gonna it's gonna it, it's just as green uh, it's just as perfect. By November, the overseeded uh, perennial ryegrass, which is what you see in April. Uh, underneath that is Bermuda. Yeah. Uh, so all summer long, it's a bermuda base golf course. And then in early September, they scalp it, uh, the Bermuda, and they overseed with the perennial rye. Uh, now, if they were to have played the tournament in September or October, as it was rumored early on, they might have just left it on the Bermuda grass, which would have been a very different kind yeah. of a tournament.
1: The greens well, you, are always – You do see older masters on – but you do well, see the older masters on Bermuda, and uh, it doesn't really look that different on TV, does it? It's, uh, they're still great yeah. playing surfaces.
2: It would be. And it, it, you know, up until 1980, the, the greens were Bermuda at Augusta. Yeah. Now they're bent, and they're perfect. They will be perfect. Every caddy that I've talked to says they're just as nice in October as they are in April. The only difference is they haven't cut them down to tournament uh, height yet, but they can do that. Anytime they want to, they control the moisture uh, and temperature in those greens uh, with their sub-air system. Uh, So they can do pretty incredible things with it. The difference you'll see is maybe the rye will be a little bit lusher at the beginning of the season because it's, it's still growing in. They might not cut it down quite as low as they typically do. Uh, and, of course, it's going to be cooler temperatures, so the ball's not going to carry as far. So I think you're going to see a longer golf course in November
0: Get than on you Zach would in Johnson, April. Eh? Get on Zach Johnson. Yeah,
2: exactly. Yeah. That year, I mean, it, 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 the temperatures that year were yeah. probably what you might experience on some mornings uh, uh, in November there. Because last year, the same week that they're looking this year, one day was 48 and another day was 73. So <laughs> it can be a, quite a range. Uh, but it'll play longer, but it'll be just as green. You won't notice any difference on television, except you won't see azaleas. You'll see colour
1: in trees. Autumn, autumn colours, yeah. Or, sorry, yeah. Fall, fall colours, as, you, as you'd say.
2: There, there will be that, and 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 I'm sure they will have a person assigned to every leaf that falls out of the tree to get it up off the ground <laughs> as, soon, as soon as it <laughs> comes off.
1: What do you think well, They about import that? the leaves, don't they, from the, some
0: the, other... The, no, the pine the straw part. they do. The pine straw they do. Yeah. Pine straw is not off the trees that are above oh, no. it. They yeah. bring it in. Uh, right? Bring it in. And the sand. Everybody's, well, everybody's sand, pine is
2: it? straw doesn't come from their own trees. Uh, pine straw is
0: quite an industry Isn't around pine, here.
1: Pine straw is native yeah. to uh, the Australian Golf Club here
0: in Sydney, actually. I think. Got- <laughs> are you in the, the pocket of big pine straw, Adrian? <laughs> you, seem to be, you seem to be running a line here. It's not so popular. Uh, is it a bit... Big brotherish, this whole thing, Scott. I mean, Augusta National, the Masters. It's all so wonderful on the surface, but building tunnels under roads and compounds for players and controlling the whole thing—it's all a bit weird, isn't it?
2: Well, it is a little bit. Until you think about how much money they make, uh, you know, they don't charge their members any more than any other private club. I think, in fact, I think it would be a modest uh, initiation fee and annual dues uh, for the membership, they make so much money during that master's tournament that what else are they going to do with it? They don't want to pay taxes on all of it. So they turn it into, uh, purchasing and building, uh, eventually they'll run out of things to do and things to build. Uh, but neither you nor I will be alive, uh, when that day comes. And at that point, I guess they'll just have to pay taxes like the rest of, uh, the people but uh in the meantime they just reinvest
0: if anything's going to get your credential pulled for the future scott it's going to be that that they'll pay taxes (laughs) (laughs) steve Ethan will be spitting his coffee all over his computer screen hearing that That well it won't go down well
2: well yeah everybody knows what they do that's why they do all this stuff that's why they spend all this money because they have it and if you you know you have to spend it uh if you roll it back into the product uh that's the way they do it and then by buying property now, that's their biggest uh, allocation probably every year.
0: Yeah, so that that media a-
2: center, have you all been to the new media center?
0: No, I've never no. been. Never been. Scott. No, I've, I've walked past it.
2: Okay. It's, it's, it's the Ritz-Carlton yeah. of media centers. It's Soon the it. nicest building you'll ever go in in your life, and it's used one week a year. Yeah. It's insane. It costs $65 million to build it.
0: Yeah, no. See, I don't buy it. I reckon they're running the Thunderbirds from there. Oh, you you don't have Thunderbirds. That's what I reckon. I reckon that's where, that's where don't the trace that's <laughs> where the Tracys have moved to. Adrian, they're uh, they're running from a bunker underneath uh, Augusta National. Where can people find you now, Scott? Of course, for all of that and everything that you did, I think you finished up with the Augusta Chronicle in twenty eighteen. Lots of changes in our industry, changes to the Augusta Chronicle, change in management. You're off doing some different stuff now. What's freelance life like uh, in America and writing about golf? I think you do a bit of football too, don't you? But mostly golf
2: yeah freelance life was a lot better before this pandemic hit i can tell you that uh but uh but you know i write for, some for golf.com, some for golf digest uh and i've been writing i've been covering the majors for the irish examiner uh i do have my own little website a, a patreon website that you can find scottmichaud.com, i think takes you to that uh but uh but that's just more of a hobby for me uh, and a few of my closest friends who decided to subscribe to that. but uh, Rather than have to but, endure yeah. talking to you, <laughs> just exactly. log on but for a I, couple of bucks up. a week
0: and read. Yeah.
2: I love being on Twitter and doing all the stuff there and, and, and just like Adrian, finding the most obscure things <laughs> we can find out uh, in this time because we have nothing but time on well, our hands. Fine.
0: My recommendation, don't go off too early. There could be months of this, so just hold some stuff back. Just pace yourself. Uh, You don't want to be getting all the good stuff. Well, you know,
2: I was doing a countdown that I started at 80 days before the Masters, and I got to about 26 uh, when all of this life went on hold, and now the countdown is at 214, and I don't have enough nuggets to count us down to no but I'm going to try. I'm going (laughs) to try.
0: Is that website still running, Adrian? The Masters countdown. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. There's, there's There's lots of those websites.
1: Have they, actually, have they made how many match? days until the Masters? I assume they've all adjusted. Have they? Now I don't that, know. we've had dates
0: announced. I assume they. Yeah. No. That's a terrible I wonder, industry. I to wonder be. if they got released the information before anybody else. <laughs> <laughs> well, you'll know which one Augusta's running by the one that had the information first. That's how you'll be able to pinpoint. Uh, exactly what's going on scott been great to yeah, chat think- to you we could do loads more but i've just had a look at the time we'd better not because if there's anybody left listening uh, it's only going to be my mum and adrian's mum. and i don't know whether your mum's still with us but if she wants to have a listen she can too so uh hello to all of them been great to chat to you mate we must get you back well let's say around october november <laughs> if the masters goes in what would you put your house on the masters going ahead in november scott
2: i i like their chances better than anyone else yeah
0: yeah but I- I've got my doubts. I think we're done for the year, personally. I don't think yeah. we'll see any golf you till 2021. could be right. Till I don't think – I'm not even sure. If we have an Australian season, log, the only upside might be that the Australian Open may be the first tournament on the international schedule, and because of that, might get some entries that we might not otherwise have got, and it might be a boost for us without having to pay for it because blokes will be looking for somewhere to play, but I'm not even convinced that that's going to Yeah.
1: Happen. If there is no Australian Open, I'm happy to – Create the Australian Open and, like, you know, what's to stop us just calling some event that we run the Australian Open? That's
0: um, well, there's a bunch of copyright and trademark stuff, but aside from that, you're quite right. You can do it, you can start an Australian Open if you like. Don't involve me. When you say we, I hope you're talking about somebody else and not me because I haven't got the money to fight uh, a copyright issue. Scott, great to chat. Thank you, my friend. We'll talk to you again soon. Thank you for having me. No, it was an absolute pleasure. And Adrian, terrific to have you along as always and get your insights, weird and offbeat though they sometimes are. Thanks, Rob. Thanks, Scott. That's it for episode 27 of the Good Good Golf Podcast, but there will be an episode 28, and it will be about the same time next week here on the Good Good Golf Podcast.